Good morning. It's good to be here and have the opportunity to present the Word of God to you this morning. I'd like to take the time to extend my gratitude to the BB Branch, Branch, excuse me, Church of Christ for the amount of support that you send on a month-to-month basis. It truly does make the education and living expenses at the Memphis School of Preaching possible. So I do appreciate that. By way of introduction, I'd like to notice Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Job was a righteous man. Job was one that feared the Lord and eschewed evil. In Job 1-2, we have Job's substance listed for us. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys and a very great household so that this man was the greatest of all men in the east. Then Satan comes along and he accuses Job of only following God because of that which he possessed. In chapter 1 verse 11 we have recorded, but put forth thy hand and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee too. Thy face. Time progresses, and Job is told in verses 14 through 15 that his oxen and his donkeys had been taken and servants were killed. Verse 16, he's told that fire from heaven had fallen and burned up his sheep, and even more servants were killed. In 17, he's told that his camels had been killed, and that even more servants were killed. And in verses 18 through 19, I believe Job received news that would hit home to any parent today. He was told that his children had died due to to the collapsing of his eldest son's home. But what Job does next says a lot about his character. It says he shaved his head, he rent his mantle, and he fell to the ground, and he worshiped God. And the conclusion of chapter 1 goes on to say, In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. But time progresses and Job begins to question God for his current situation. He begins to ask God, why am I going through this? Now time will not allow me to exegete the entire 38th chapter of the book of Job. But if you don't mind me paraphrasing, God had to remind Job that he was sovereign. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I created the stars, the heaven, and the moon? That's right, Job, you weren't born yet. Could you do the things that I can do? The answer, of course, to those questions were no. And this led to Job realizing that he had charged God foolishly. Job 42 and 3. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. This morning's sermon is entitled Charging God Foolishly. And we will examine four points in which mankind today charges God foolishly. Man charges God foolishly when we simply say God didn't mean that. We charge God foolishly when we say God sent or took someone to get my attention. We charge God foolishly when we say God made me this way. And we charge God foolishly when we say God has done nothing for me. Let us notice first together when we say God doesn't mean that. I like to start by saying if God does not mean what he says, then one might as well call God a liar. God is good as being as good as being a liar if you say God does not mean what he says. 
And now one does not have to verbally profess this, but this can be rather seen in the way that one chooses to live their life. Notice Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Paul writes to Titus, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world. The Hebrews writer goes on to write in Hebrews 6 and chapter verse 18, excuse me, by two immutable things in which that it was impossible, impossible for God to lie. I say that to say this, that God has never lied to man about anything. In fact, God has always been straightforward with man from the beginning. If you think back with me to the account of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God was straightforward when he told them what was going to happen, was he not? Straightforward. If you partake of this tree of knowledge, good and evil, thou shalt surely die. But Satan comes along and says that thou not. You shall not die. Genesis 3, 4. If you notice a, a, small, a small change, you will die to, no, you will not die. But look at how much it costs man by that small change. It costs man a lot. And just a side note, every time that I read Genesis and I'm trying to pull knowledge from the chapters and pull knowledge from those verses, I came to this conclusion. You know, man never received the promise in which Satan said that they would. God does not want you to partake of this fruit because if you do, you will become as gods. You will become like God and you will know all things. You will be able to discern good from evil. That never came to fruition. It never happened. So we should consider this when we say, well, we want to simply stray away from what God has to say. You're always going to fall short when we never stick with what God has said. We need to take God at his word. Did God mean what he said when he told Noah to preach that it was going to rain and all the earth was going to be flooded? Did he mean what he said? I can just imagine Noah standing there preaching. Same sermon. Can't modify it. Hey, everybody. It's getting ready to rain. The next Sunday. Hey, you over here. It's going to rain. The next Sunday. Hey, it's going to rain. What's rain, Noah? It's never rain. What are you talking about? You are crazy. Let's notice what the text tells us. Genesis 7, 4. For yet seven days... I will cause it to rain upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. Genesis 7:10 and 12. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days. The students took a trip to the uh, Creation Museum during the restoration trip. And basically what, what you see when you're walking through this creation museum, you're walking through the pages of Genesis all the way up to the time of the coming Christ. And one exhibit they had, it was the, the, the flood exhibit. And they had these pieces constructed in a way so you could just really get a visual of what it would have been like during the time of this account. And of course we can think, you know, well, the water's, the water's coming up. The water's are rising and the water's coming down. But what really struck me are the individuals that they had crawling on the rocks, trying to cling to some kind of hope, trying to fight for hope. Animals attacking them and trying to get away from the water. It was really an example of people just being without hope because simply they did not take God at his word. 
They did not verbally say, well, hey, we don't believe what God has to say, but it was rather displayed in their actions by not choosing to get on that ark. So if God meant what he said when he told Noah to preach that it was going to rain and that he was going to destroy the earth, surely God meant what he said when he said this, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him, Matthew 17, 5. And surely Christ meant what he said when he spoke and said, And I say that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And just a side note, think about it. When Noah was bidding, hey, everyone, it's going to rain, and you have to get on the ark, was one ark. One vessel that was going to save you, one vessel that was going to give you hope, one way to enter into the ark, one door. I guess it's kind of shallow-minded for us Church of Christers, huh? I'm sure you've heard that before. But one way that this was going to happen. And I say that to say this, the church is likened to the ark today. So when Christ died, Christ did not die for the Baptist church, Presbyterian church, Methodist church. There's a couple of interesting names. Uh, I drove down the road and there was a church of God, the God of prophecy. That's a new one for me. I've never heard of that before. Surely Christ did not die for that church. When he tells Peter that thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, it shows ownership. Shows his ownership. That takes me to my second point this morning. Man charges God foolishly when we say God took or sent someone to get my attention. One needs to realize what they are affirming by stating God took this person to get my attention. What they are affirming is that God specifically, intentionally ended the life of another individual to get you to come into recognition of the truth. And this is charging God foolishly. We have no example of this ever being performed in Scripture. And if we cannot find it in Scripture, I ask you, then why affirm it? There is no reason. Joshua twenty four fifteen, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter 1, 10. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling an election, sure. Now we know one is called by the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, Romans 10.17. But what is this election that Peter is speaking of? Well, you have elections around here, right? You cast a vote. When you go to cast your vote, that's going towards the election process. And ultimately, who wins the popular vote or however they decided, that is who elected. That's who is elected into office. So the process is set forth here for you to obey the gospel, but you have to elect to do so. You have a choice. So what Peter is saying is to give diligence to make your choosing to obey the gospel sure. These two passages right here throw a monkey wrench into the doctrine that God has to send somebody to make a person believe. It takes away your free will, your God-given free will. One has to decide to follow God of his own will. Likewise, like it is said that God has sent someone to get my attention, it is also said that God sent someone to get my attention. When I study, I often like to begin the study with asking, what did you do to be saved? I'll either have them tell me what they did to be saved or I'll have them write it down just so we can backtrack and see if what they did lines up with what scripture says. I have one guy telling me, well, you know, God gives me understanding. God just lets me know. We have a certain understanding. I asked him, sir, are you greater than Christ? 
He told me, so you're being very disrespectful. I said, well, I'm not being disrespectful. I won't, if we can't study the scripture, well, then we shouldn't be studying. Are you greater than Christ, sir? Well, of course you know the answer to that question. No, I'm not greater than Christ. Well, who is it that, that the scriptures tell us that God spake last through? He spake last through his son, Hebrews 1, 1, uh, 1, 1 2 through 2. He spake through his son. So surely he's not talking to you. The last person that he spoke to to give us direct revelation was Christ. And then his apostles carried his doctrine. No one else. So surely the Lord's not talking to you. But I'd like to examine something in Scripture. If you would, join me over in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Here we have the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Now the rich man finds himself in torment. And he wants Lazarus to dip his finger in water and come over to cool the tip of his tongue because he is being tormented in his flame. And Abraham lets him know, I cannot grant your request. There is a great multitude that is dividing both of us, and neither can one man leave one side to enter the other. Your request cannot be granted. So what he goes on to say is, well, okay, well, if Lazarus can't come here to help me with my torment, send Lazarus back from the dead so that my brothers will not come to this place. Please send someone. Verse 31. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, excuse me, though one rose from the dead. And previous to this, to this uh, reference in scripture, he goes on to say, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. You know, when I, I think about it, you know, it's funny. A lot of times people say, if I could have just lived during the times of Christ... Maybe if I could have seen the miraculous power, the, the wonderful might of the almighty God, maybe that would somehow increase my faith. Well, you know, I think about it. There was one that was greater than any prophet that we read about. The prophets, in fact, they spoke of him. He came and he worked many wonders and signs before men. They hung him on a cross, thinking that they defeated him. And he rose victorious from the grave, never to die again. And over 500 men seen his ascension. And still, to, what is the result today? We have so many non-believers. These men that were present when all this was going on, it still didn't do anything. Of course, for the ones that followed, excuse me, but for the multitudes that did not follow him, what was seeing the Christ, what did that benefit them? It did nothing for them. Not only that, when I read the scripture, I think about the answer that's been given in the time frame. This is the time frame of the miraculous. This is the time frame of miracles and wonders and signs being proclaimed and, and being set forth. Yet you see, emphasis is still placed on the living word of God. This takes me to my third point this morning. Man charges God foolishly when we say, God made me this way. I know, young and old alike, everybody, you've heard this before. Well, I just have to do this. I have to act out this way. I have to. I'm an animal. I have to do it. I have to let it out. This is charging God foolishly. Saying that God made me this way is an excuse that man has made for centuries and centuries to carry out idolatrous, and, uh, idolatrous acts and uh, acts of fornication. The Corinthians, in fact, use this argument to justify their fornication. If you would join me over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll begin at verse 9. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Paul goes on to list all the things that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And 11 just concludes this entire thought that I want to set forth this morning. 11 goes on to say, such were some of you. Such were some of you. These same people that said, you know what, God, you made me this way. I have to act out on my idolatrous and my lustful, my lustful desires. Such were some of you. Such were some of you would imply that members of the Corinthian church were partakers of these things listed. But they displayed temperance, self-control to, at some point, obey the gospel. But that wasn't good enough. They obeyed the gospel through being baptized continued in the doctrine for a little while, then decided to go back down the road that they just came out of. This is foolish, and then charge God about it. You see, what would happen in Corinth, they would assemble. They had a place where they would assemble for worship. And afterwards, you had the harlots walking around with these sandals. They had an engraving on their sandals, and they'd walk around in the sand. They'd walk around. And these sandals would tell them, tell the men to follow these harlots to the hills, where they would join themselves with the harlots. And then yet they wanted to blame that on God. I tell you, to give you a modern day application, that would be equivalent to me preaching the word of God to you today and finding a gentleman's club right after I got done preaching and blaming that on God. That would be foolish. Foolish. The argument given, they say, well, meat's for the belly and belly's for the meat. Paul goes on to say that the body is not for fornication, verse 13, but for the Lord. The body was not designed for fornication, but for the Lord. Now I want to make this point before I move on. The desires that we have to join ourselves sensually with the other sex, it is natural. So there's truth to the statement that we've been made to have a desire towards the other sex. There's, there's truth value in that statement. But that's not the whole purpose of why we were created. Okay, but the, with the desires that God has given us to want to join ourselves to the opposite sex, he's given us rules to regulate them. He's given us rules of regulation and he's given us marriage, but simply no one wants to, to follow his regulations anymore. You see this? We shut this up. We don't care what he has to say. We don't care what he has to say anymore. Well, God, I'll figure it out on my own. Or you didn't mean it when you said, well, we shouldn't be out there fornicating or committing adultery. You don't mean it. Surely, surely you don't. And I like to say this is what we do to the Bible, just set it aside. But that's not the truth. Let's take the Bible and throw it under here. Let's just get it out of the picture and then blame God. This is charging God foolishly. Likewise, and I know everybody's heard this today, it's a big issue in politics. It's a big issue. You cannot turn on the TV and not see it now. But likewise, believe it or not, there are individuals in society today that would blame God and say that God made me a homosexual. God made me this way. This is charging God foolishly. We've got doctors right now in laboratories looking for this, this missing chromosome, this chromosome that does not exist, this X chromosome that somehow is going to determine the outcome of your sexual preference from the get-go. 
Well, I submit to you this morning, brothers and sisters, that homosexuality is not a medical issue. It's not. And I'll say it a thousand times. Homosexual is not a medical issue. It is a moral issue. And you cannot divide it from morality. Morality is defined as principles concerning the distinction between right or wrong, good or bad. Merrin Webster goes on to, uh, to uh, define principles as a fundamental truth or proposition that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior or a train of reasoning. So if we take the definitions that we can find from the dictionary and apply it to what we find in the Bible, the fundamental truth is, is this. We see after creation, we see that God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. So what did God give man? God provided man with a woman. It's a fundamental truth that we cannot deny. He didn't create, and I used to laugh when my mom would say this. I thought it was so funny. It tickled me. My mom used to tell me, they didn't create Adam and Steve. It was Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. So the fundamental truth that we find from going back to the scriptures is that marriage was supposed to be one man, one woman, one woman for one man, and thus forth. But I want to show you something. I, I, want to, I want to show you a passage that you can use because, like I said, I'm sure every one of you have heard this, that the Lord has made me a homosexual. Join me over in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. And we're going to notice verse 29. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29. And it reads... Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. So what is the writer trying to get across here? What is he trying to say in this passage right here? That from the beginning, God hath made man morally straight, morally upright from the beginning. Ezekiel also references, references this to, uh, to a man being straightened. Ezekiel, I want to say the chapter is 25. Don't hold me to it because I don't have it up here. But Ezekiel, he even says that thou were perfect in the eyes of the Lord until iniquity was found in your hearts. Man was made morally straight from the beginning. Okay, but they sought out many inventions. What does it mean by inventions? What is he trying to say? Man has figured out different ways to plot, devise, scheme, and go around the already established unfallible word of God. Man has done that. Sought out inventions. You know what ties it all together. Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Solomon. King Solomon. Towards the end of his life. Now what's funny about this is this. If there was any person in scripture that could say God made me this way or could have used it for an argument, shouldn't it have been King Solomon? Shouldn't he have been able to say, well, you know what? God, you made me this way. I mean, this was the man that had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Yet we don't find Solomon here blaming God for his multiple wives and concubines. But rather he realized that that problem laid on him. This is a scripture that's ungetaroundable, as Brother Moser likes to say. You can't get around Ecclesiastes 7.29. And not only that, if you get into realms of God made me a homosexual, well, now you open the door for another argument. Now you got respect of persons. You have a hard time getting me to believe that, okay, here it is. God is listing that he's condemning something. Yet God saw fit to make little Timmy homosexual. 
It just doesn't make sense. Wouldn't that make it a little bit harder for Timothy to obey what God has already said if from the beginning he has decided that Timothy was going to be homosexual? It's just not right. It's not, a, it's not a valid argument. It lacks consistency. But that is charging God foolishly. This takes me to my fourth and my final point this morning. Man charges God foolishly when we utter the words that God has never done anything for me. And I've heard it so many times, so many times. Who is God? What has he done for me? God's done nothing. You know, I was talking to my wife the other day, and I said, it's, it's interesting, the, 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 the long-suffering nature that God sets forth. You know, even non-believers, to some degree, still enjoy the blessings of the Lord every day and just don't realize it. Every day. Yet, and I was just telling her, just explaining it to her, and it's funny, but you know, at the, at the end, they'll have exactly what they want. Complete separation from God. Complete, because right now, even being a non-believer, you can live through this life, you can be in existence, you can see the stars, you can see the moon, you can see the sun, you can admire beauty, you can see all these things. But imagine just being absence away from the presence of God. That's a terrible feeling. I like to take drives, and when I have spare time, and I don't have a lot of spare time, uh, being a student at the Memphis School of Preaching, they keep us pretty busy. Uh, but when I get a, a spare moment, sometimes I either like to walk or I like to take a drive. And uh, I like to reflect. Reflection's good. Self-reflection. Who am I? Look at myself. Everything that I've been blessed with. I, yeah, I told my wife the other day, we're blessed. Though we're living in this, in this student housing right here and we could have better, we are so blessed. And you know what? Like Saul should live like we live right now. For everything that he did for the Lord, I, I, you know, Saul should have been able to have the luxuries, or excuse me, who we later know as Paul. He should have had those luxuries to live like we're living, but we didn't. And, you know, we sit here, uh, you know, in comfort. You know, we're really blessed. And I think of, you know, all the things that God has done for man in general. And, you know, I reached this conclusion. I can't speak for anyone else, but I reached the conclusion that, you know, there's no way that I can ever pay God back for anything that he's done for me. There's no way. No, if I, if I could live 170 years preaching and proclaiming the word of God, I, that still would not be enough because I'm not worthy. I'll never be worthy. You know, I go back to the book of Genesis. You figure Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You know, you go on to Genesis 2-7, we find the creation of man. It says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Not only that, before that, in verses uh, chapter 1 and verses 26 through 27, and he says, let us make man our image. Not in the image of the animals, but in our image. When God made man, God gave man the best of himself. The best of himself. Let us make man in our image. That's truly remarkable. In Genesis 3.15, we have recorded for us the first act of mercy. The first prophecy of the coming Christ. A prophecy of the coming answer to man and sin and being reconciled to God. God then goes on and preserves a seed line for over, for, excuse me, about a period of 2,000 years. 2,000 years to preserve a seed line after falling away and falling away and captivity and captivity and saying captivity is not going to come. And then it comes. God held it all together because he remembered the promise that he made to Abraham. You know, something that is interesting about that is, you know, Abraham Lincoln was our president a little over, a little over 200-something years ago. And yet there's not one living relative of his family today. So one surely can look back at this Jewish bloodline and see the power 
of God. God sent his only son, and John 1.18 just one of many references. And God sent Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was killed for the sins of man, and he rose from the dead never to die again. And then Jesus ultimately goes on to establish his church, the institution in which all men is saved if they obey his will. That's a lot. I, I really can't look at that and say God's done nothing. And, you know, I could go on and on and on, uh, but, you know, time would not permit me to do so. But there's a lot that God has done for mankind. And he left it in a book that we call the Bible. And I, ch- I challenge people to fall in, lo- fall in love with your Bible. Don't fall in love with the oratory skills. I'm not saying Brother Lawrence doesn't do a, God, does, doesn't do a great job. I'm sure he does a great job. I'm sure. I'm sure of it. But fall in love with the word of God. Fall in love with it. My favorite scripture is 2 Peter 1.3. It says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto what? Life and godliness. He hasn't left out anything. Not 50% of things, three-fourths things, but he goes on to say all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So, well, if God has given us the answer to everything in a book that he called the Bible, well, then who can we read out? Well, we can read out the politicians that we are hoping that are going to change this country. The politicians, you know, they don't have the answer to, to our problems. Sometimes I question, do they know what they're doing themselves? I'm sorry, I don't. What are, do, do, do they know what they're doing in Washington? Surely not. We don't need them. We don't need governors. We don't need school teachers. We don't need Oprah Winfrey. I, I tell you, I can't stand Oprah Winfrey. I'm from the Chicago area. I can't stand that woman. I'm hard on her. I don't like her. You know, just detouring a young woman and telling them, you know, hey, well, you know, Paul was a chauvinist. She, she attacks the Bible. That woman is, is, is one of the many antichrists. I'm hard on her. But we don't need, you know, Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Phil and all these other people to tell us the latest paradigms. It's funny. The conclusions that they, that they draw, you ever notice that you can find them in the Bible? They're, they're pulling it from some scriptural source, yet they say it's not authoritative. Well, you have to know a child and... You know, send them on their way and, and help them find out. Is that not what the scripture says? To train up a child in the way that he should go and they should not depart from him. That's what that scripture is saying. Know your child and send them in that direction. It's not a latest counseling paradigm. It's in the word of God. We've been getting, given everything that we need. So consequently, if you take away every self-help book that we have in this country right now and leave only the word of God, what you would have is a society that was functioning with little chaos. I'm not going to say it would rid all, all chaos because we're people and people have problems. But it surely would do something about the lifestyle in which we live in today. But then if you do the exact opposite, if you weed out the Bible like these societies are telling you to do, kick out the Bible, we don't care what the Bible has to say, and we implement these self-help books, and we implement these science books, what do you have now? What we're living in, a world full of chaos. Don't pray here. Don't speak here. Don't say anything about God here. It's funny. You know, you can read the Bible in prison, but they don't want you reading in the schools as if, it's a, as, if, as if it's a punishment. Maybe if you kept more of those Bibles outside of the prisons and put them back in the schools, less people would go to prison. It's illogical. But we have to get back to the book. I used to do a little boxing before I became a preacher. Uh, I'm sure you can't tell. I put on about 30 pounds being in Memphis. But uh, I used to be a boxer before I came down. And one of my, one of my favorite boxers, uh, his name was Ruben uh, 
Carter. They called him the Hurricane. And I just really, I liked how he could move, and I liked how he could stick it, and I just tried to model my entire fighting style after this guy. Well, later on in life, they made a movie about him called The Hurricane, starring Denzel Washington. And what happened, basically, Reuben, Reuben Hurricane Carter, he's a prize fighter in the 60s. He was robbed of the title, should have won the title, but the judges, they uh, scored against him. But time goes on, and Reuben is con uh, charged with robbery and murder. Now, you got lawyers and you got prosecuting lawyers and defense lawyers all looking in on the evidence, okay? And you may have seen the movie and you may have not seen the movie. But all the evidence that was there for the case led to this man being innocent. Innocent. He didn't do anything. He wasn't, he wasn't at the scene of the crime. He was with his wife. He, he, there's no way that he could have killed these people and robbed this place. But because of hard hearts, because of twisted minds, they simply said, you know what, well, we don't care what the evidence states, and we're going to go ahead and we're going to convict this man anyway. And that's exactly what happened. They convicted Reuben Hurricane Carter, and he went, I want to say, served 17 years in jail. Now, hopefully he got out. Excuse me, he did. He, yeah, he got out. 17 years later, he got out. But he was innocently convicted because the people who looked at the facts, looked into it, could see it for what it was and simply said, we don't care what it says. I tell you what, when we close up the word of God like that and when we go through trials in our life and then we want to go back and we want to charge God and say that it was God, I want you to know that we are doing the same thing, brothers and sisters. We are charging God foolishly. And if you don't remember anything that I say today, don't remember my name or anything else, just remember that we should not charge God foolishly. And the only way that we will do that is if we cling to that book that we call the Bible. Now, in that book that I love so much, it tells us that there's one way to get to the Father. That's what the evidence says. I don't care what many people say. They say it's one mountaintop and many ways to get there. The Greek word for that is hogwash. Hogwash. You can write that down. John writes in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You know, I like to often ask people, what is the most, the most fearful thing to a man? Some will say death. Some will say public speaking. I land on this answer. I land on time. Time is something that scares the man and scares a man most. You see, because you can't look into time, you can't look into the future and predict what's going to happen and have it turn out the way that you say, that you say it's going to go. It's just not going to happen that way. But what you can do with time, you can always look back at time and you can see what time has done to you. You can look back and see how you've aged. You can look back at all the bad decisions that may have been made and it terrifies you because you say, oh, this has happened in time, well, only with more time, possibly more of this can happen. It terrifies a man. But, you know, with looking at that, and even at my, looking back at my life, only being 26 years of age, I, I tell myself all the time that, you know what, tomorrow's never promised. James goes on to say in James 4.14, for what is your life? It is but a vapor that, vanisheth, that appeareth for a little while, then vanisheth away. If you've ever been fishing, you know what I'm talking about. You go out early in the morning, you fish, you see that mist hazing right over the water. Well, this is what the Lord has equated our lives to. It's something that appears for a little while, but when that sunset comes up, that mist is gone. That's our life. That is our life. If Christ was standing here today, in your face, and he said, you see this ship back here? It's going to heaven. And if you want to go to heaven, you got to get on this ship. I don't care what that ship says. I don't care what this ship says. You have to get on this ship to go to heaven. 
the individual that will want to go would say, here am I. I want to go. Can I please get on the ship? I know I would. I'm, I'm sorry. I'd probably knock most of you over and get on the ship. I probably would. I want to go. <laughs> what do I have to do? I'm sure if Christ was here, Christ would not deviate from the scriptures. Christ would say, well, first what you have to do, you have to hear the unadulterated word of God. Romans 10, 17. So faith coming by hearing, hearing by the word of God. That's what you have to do. Okay, well, I've done that, Lord. What do I do after that? Okay, we have to believe that I am the living son of God. John 8, 24. Believe that I am. Wholeheartedly believe. You must repent, Acts 17, 30. Repent from what it is that is separating you from your God, the lifestyle that is hindering you. Turn away from it and submit to God. Then you must go on to confess that Christ is Lord, Romans 10, 10. And I emphasize confession because a lot of us, we, we just stop at this verbal confession. And, and essentially, that's what it is from the beginning. We verbally confess that I believe that Christ is the living Son of God. But then that confession continues on by our actions, our lifestyles. That's how we confess Christ. Then one must be baptized. Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized must be saved. You know, I was studying with one lady. She said, that's not in my Bible. I said, turn to it. She cut it out. It really wasn't in her Bible. But she can't get around it. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And he that believeth not shall be damned. And one must go on to live a faithful life. Romans 2.10. It could be the case that you hear and you've done those things. You simply went to the left and went to the light. To the right, excuse me. Allow the congregations to offer up prayers on your behalf and get yourself right and restored to the Lord today. Do you want to get on the ship? Jesus says you can, but he asks you, do you have the courage to do so? Well, the evidence has been set before you, brothers and sisters, and it's your choice to decide what you want to do with it. But if anyone is here this morning and you need to respond to the invitation in any way, please do so as we all together stand and sing.